This is an article in the Atlantic Monthly that came out last year where they're, they're kind of exploring whether or not the institution of marriage is dying. But the woman who wrote the article is a uh, middle-aged woman who's never been married. And she writes it from a perspective you probably don't anticipate. This is how she begins. Recent years has seen an explosion in male joblessness and a steep decline in men's life prospects. And that it's disrupted the romantic market in a way that throws, uh, in, a way, in ways that narrow a marriage-minded woman's options. You hear what she's saying? Guys can't keep jobs. Guys' gender are in decline in respectability, and that's making it harder for women to find men who are marriable. She literally goes on to contemplate, maybe we need to jettison this idea of traditional marriage, not because she doesn't like men, but because she's finding fewer and fewer men who are worth liking or respecting. Uh, This is where the Christian pastors and the feminists, they're actually on the same side on a lot more issues than you think. This is where conservative Christian pastors and the feminists are on the same same side. This, This writer very much wants to like a man. She just doesn't find very many that are respectable. Um... Even Phillips, uh, Stanford's Philip Zimbardo, whom y'all are probably familiar with, who did the Stanford Prison Experiment and became famous for that, he's actually now using his fame to talk about the decline of men and, and this perpetual adolescence that we can't get out of. And he talks about pornography and he talks about video games and all these different ways. Men aren't growing up. Men are failing at relationships. They don't understand commitment. They're doing worse in school. They're not actually uh, more... I think at this point, within the last year, there are now more women in management positions than men in the world. Um, uh, girls are graduating from college at, a, I think, a 3 to 2 rate over men. Uh, guys are on a downswing. And what that means for us tonight, as we talk about it, is we, our hope is to open the Bible and let it speak to us about what it means to be men. And guys, we need to not be threatened by this. Uh, we don't need, uh, we, we need to be okay with it, maybe questioning some of the cultural norms for masculinity. Um, the Bible is not going to endorse country music or, or, or metal music over like Bonnie Vare. Like it doesn't, the, the Bible's not going to endorse like bootcut jeans over, slim, over um, you know, skinny jeans or anything like that. I, ha- I have on Tom's shoes tonight to show, I have on Tom's shoes and I own cowboy boots. Like you can, that's okay. You know, like, it doesn't, before I had daughters, you might think uh, this would have happened after I had daughters. Before I had daughters, I owned a lot of Miley Cyrus music, and I bought the first Jessica Simpson CD. And at the same time, I love hunting and fishing and lifting and college football. I say all that to say, let's not get hung up on our common kind of cultural narratives about what it means to be masculine. Because if we do, then I'm really messed over. But (laughs) um, for guys... Let's engage this in a sophisticated manner and not just endorse our particular personality. That's what we want to do. Um, For girls, you also need to have your conceptions of masculinity informed by the Bible as well. Uh, Just like the guys, you can have a warped view of masculinity because you can be foolishly attracted to the kind of men who masquerade as strong but in fact are not. And and any girl, there have been several girls who have been honest with me about the whole attraction to the bad boy thing, right? The whole bad boy phenomenon is a bastardization of what it means to be masculine, right? This guy appears strong. He appears like he throws rules to the wind, whatever it is. And I find that attractive even though I know I shouldn't, you know? Okay, your understanding and what you're attracted to as masculine is also warped. 
and, uh, and, and we want to bring that into Scripture as well. The other thing you can do, girls, is you can actually simply settle for affection. So a guy gives you attention. Attention is a drug. It feels great to have that attention. Uh, and, and simply being liked at such a strong narcotic that you don't exercise wisdom and who you're attracted to and who you continue to date. And so you'll be unwilling to make good decisions because those are hard decisions. And so you get carried away with foolish men and with immature men. So tonight we're going to read this passage from Deuteronomy 17. Uh, It's an interesting passage. The reason I chose it is this. It outlines what the king of Israel is supposed to be like. And the reason we're going to look at this, there are a lot of other places we could have looked. We could have looked at Proverbs. We could have looked at uh, Paul in, in his letter to Timothy talking about what an elder in a church would look like. But the king of Israel was supposed to be the ideal man. That's who he's supposed to be. And so we're going to look at this and see when God says, I'm setting, here's the kind of man I want to lead my people. Um, This is his description. So hear these couple of words and we'll look at them. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, and he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and as we consider a passage in an odd place like Deuteronomy, and as it confronts us, I pray that You would open it, that You would challenge us, but not just challenge us, dear God, but You would begin to move us towards the kind of men You intended us to be. And I pray that You would give the women here imaginations and hopes for the kind of men that you intend us to be and that we would together labor towards restoring the genders, restoring the roles of men and women in a joyful way and seeing the flourishing that can happen. We begin to grow into this. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to jump right in. Point one. When you come in the land the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and say... I'll set a king over me like all the nations that, uh, like all the nations that are around me. You can set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, but one from among your brothers you shall sit as a king over you, not, your, not a foreigner. Here's what God's doing right off the bat. And we kind of covered this point actually in the introduction. What he's saying is the surrounding culture is not an adequate guide for defining the ideal man. The surrounding culture is not an adequate guide for defining the ideal man. God says, you can have a king. The the Israelites are in the desert at this point. They're not to the promised land, um, not to where they will settle in Israel. 
And he's saying, you'll have a king one day when you settle there. But listen to what he says. I also said, you may, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. And he can't be a foreigner. You see, the temptation that the Israelites will undergo when they get there and ask for a king the first time is they'll say, God, give us a king like all the other nations. They actually use the template of the kings of all the other nations around them. They look at them all and they say, these kings are strong, they're dominant, um, they're successful. And they actually ask him, he recognizes this, right? Give us a king like all the other nations king. We want to use that as our template for the ideal man. And here God is setting up before they even get there, years before they get there. I'm going to set a king over you, but he's going to be someone that I choose not one like the nations, which is what you're going to be tempted to think is masculinity. The ideal man, as God has conceived him, is going to look different than the, the ideal man as culture conceives of it. And this is what uh, one, one pastor said, we need to be careful that we don't equate our preferred type of masculinity with biblical manhood. It is not fair to say without qualification that real men hunt and fish, real men like football, real men watch ultimate fighting, real men love Braveheart, real men, and real men do love Braveheart, actually, but <laughs> I disagree with that one. Real men change the oil and chop firewood. And it's one thing for pastors to give men permission to be like this. It's another thing to prescribe that men have to be like this. You, you just can't prove that the Bible prescribes this kind of masculinity. And by doing so, if you try to do so, you're in danger of, A, hurting godly men who are manly but don't necessarily like those activities. And also what you're doing is you're making your personality the template for masculinity. And the pastor also says this, On the other hand, a different set of Christians needs to be careful they don't make Jesus as the quintessential man into a progressive beatnik. Some Christians reject the stereotype in that first paragraph only to replace it with another one. So Jesus... Uh, and therefore, every real man hates all violence, protests social inequality, and probably paints with watercolors. <laughs> that actually ignores who Jesus is in much of the scripture. He's the avenger in Revelation 6 and 19. Jesus is a friend of rich people in the Gospels. And it flattens out the biblical narrative into another predictably anachronistic tale of how Jesus was a man just like me. What he's saying is there have been two errors... Uh, in kind of recent conversations about masculinity among Christians, of high, this kind of hyper-realized masculinity that comes from culture, or this kind of, for lack of a re- under-realized masculinity, that Jesus is this ultimate softy or Jesus is this warrior. And neither one of those are really appropriate or right or defensible from Scripture. And so the first point of application is simply this. We've got to go to the Bible. Um, and, and if you're here and you're not sure what you think about Christianity, if you're a skeptic and you're wondering, then I would simply ask you this. Consider the model of manhood set forth here. Just consider it and see if there's not a ton of wisdom and a ton of hope in it, as opposed to the kind of the other cultural tropes we have for what masculinity is. And so here's our, here are kind of two points we're going to hang out on tonight. And what we're going to see is two basic things about masculinity and manhood in the Bible. And the first one is this. The mature man, the godly man, knows who his God is and seeks to submit to Him. Knows who his God is and seeks to submit to Him. The second point then is the godly man uses his power 
in service to the world. How do I have them in here? First, the godly man is under the right authority. He knows who his God is and seeks to submit to him. And secondly, the godly man takes all of his resources and uses it to take responsibility for himself and others. So the first point, the mature man, the godly man, this is seen in verses 18 through 22, is someone who knows he is under authority, who knows that he has a God, and seeks to submit to that God. So you see this king, when he sits on his throne in his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. He's talking about Scripture. He's talking about the Old Testament right here. And he's committed to exploring, to learning, and to keeping the Bible ever-present in his life. For the very explicit reason, right, it shall be with him, shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Now, this is, this is, he's got the Bible and God's Word and God's authority in and around his life all the time for the purpose of growing into submission and obedience to it. I know this is not cool. This is just what the Bible says. That he sees in it that there is one God who is worth revering. There is one true God. And we have all these other competing gods in our life. But the, the godly man is growing more and more into worship and submission to this one true God. He knows, the godly man knows that he is not his own authority. But rather he's under God's. And, and I want to make kind of two applications of this. The first one is this. First of all, the, the most immature men out there are the men who don't know that they have a God. Are the men that don't know they have a God. There's a principle at the root of all of Scripture. It's at the root here that says this. And it's demonstrated here. Whatever you revere and hold as God is going to determine how you behave. Whatever you revere and you hold as your God, the thing that sits at the center of your being, your prime set of values, whatever it is, your hopes, your dreams, your ideals, whatever it is you revere determines how you behave. 100% of the time. All of our behavior is very easily and clearly predicated upon what we care about. Whatever you hold in your heart. And what's depicted here is that the mature man knows that other things compete for his reverence, for his heart and his allegiance, but he devotes himself to the Lord and to the Word so that he can more and more grow into obedience to this Lord. But my first point is this. There are some men that still don't even know that they have gods. This is what David Foster Wallace, I've read this quote before, but it's so gold, it's always worth it. Not a Christian. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap uh, tap into the real meaning of life, you'll never have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before you die. If you worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. You'll need more power over others to keep the fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But here's my point. David Foster Wallace is acknowledging this as a non-Christian. Everybody worships something. Everybody has a God, and the most foolish men are the men who think, I'm independent, I'm my own man, I do what I want, there's not something that my life is wrapped around. 
they're completely even unaware of the fact that they have a central value, a central God, something around which their heart has been captured. These are the most foolish men. He thinks he's independent. He thinks he's creative. He thinks he's doing his own thing. This is who, that kind of guy who thinks, there's nothing guiding me. I don't have a central passion. I don't have something about which I've oriented my life. Here's who loves that guy. Big business marketers and pornographers. Because they know that guy is the most easy to manipulate. Because he thinks he's independent. He thinks he doesn't have desires, fundamental desires that guide him. He thinks he doesn't have a God. Those people are the easiest people to advertise to. Those are the people that are easiest to snag. Those are the weakest men. These are the men who immediately adapt the values of their environment. These are the men who when they come to college, they were a different person in high school and they're a different person than they are here. They, were, they looked like the people at their high school and they had the values of the people at their high school, morally, spiritually, materially, whatever it is, and they got here and they have the values of here all of a sudden. And they're, sometimes they're maybe even surprised that their behavior changes, but really it makes sense because fundamentally what their value is and what their God is is social comfort, right? So they just adapt to every social situation. And they maybe had a set of goals for who they were as a man in high school, but now it's different that they've gotten to college. They don't really know how to have a vision for who they're becoming, so they just wait until somebody gives it to them until, the, the, until there's a dominant narrative and culture that they can just kind of latch onto and say, oh, okay, that's what I'm supposed to be like. They don't know what it is they love when, in fact, really all they love is comfort. And they don't really have introspective faculties to examine their own heart or the integrity to see and say that what they love is just themselves. So their God is just their own personal happiness. That means they use women. That means they use Stanford. That means they use friend. That means they use connections in order to feel comfortable, right? And whatever that may look like. Right now, the way you're supposed to feel comfortable is you accumulate wealth. You accumulate the prestige of success. That's the current cultural narrative of how you're supposed to be happy. These guys actually don't know that they do, in fact, have a God they submit to. And it's simply the self. As friends, these guys never confront you. They're enjoyable to be around because they want to be like everybody else and be with everybody. But they never confront anybody. Because that's that's entirely too comfortable, right? These guys don't know they have a God, and that makes them, in a sense, the most immature. They don't know how to say no. They don't know how to say no to themselves. You see, every God, whether it's the God of the Bible or any of these others, is going to require you to say no to certain things. Every choice you make is also choosing against other things. You all chose to come to Stanford. That means you're not having near as much fun as if you were going to a state school, and they are having fun, just so you know. (laughs) But see, when you chose certain things here, you actually chose against certain things. But the immature man who doesn't, who, 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 who's, doesn't know that he has a God and doesn't know that his fundamental God is the self and his own comfort, the last thing he has is the capacity to say no to himself. Girls, look for the guy who has restraint. That means he's beginning, maybe maturity is beginning to break in. If you meet a guy that has some restraint, who, who can say no to himself. Guys know how to say no Mature guys know how to say no to their friends. Girls look for a guy who doesn't simply get carried along by what everybody else is doing. There's a lot of time that's good and fun. That should happen, right? But, but, but mature men and wise men and strong men 
will have the capacity to say no in certain social contexts. He'll be able to say no to his friends. Men who don't know that they have a God that they worship and the God they worship is themselves will say yes in every social context. They won't understand limits. They won't understand boundaries. They won't be able to say no in situations that are degrading or unwise or foolish because they just want to be with everybody. Girls, look for guys that know how to say no to you. If their God is self-comfort, the self, if it's pleasure, then they're not going to know how to say no to you. If you find a, uh, a guy who has something that his life is centered on that's of a higher order than himself, one of the first things you'll experience, girls, is that in a right and respectful way that honors you and makes you excited about dating him, is he'll say no to you. He'll draw boundaries in y'all's relationship. Every God's going to require you to say no to something. If your God is you, what you'll say no to is integrity. You'll be comfortable with contradiction and living in consistent lives. But if you submit to this God, you'll grow in your ability to say no to self, to say no to environment, to say no to girls, even if it hurts. And you'll do it simply because it will be the right thing to do. So there are some, the height of immaturity of the men who don't even think that they have a God, who are so easily manipulatable by by context, by social environment, by marketers. But the real mature man knows that he has a God and he's seeking to bring his life into the submission of the whole counsel of God. The mature man knows he has a God and he's actually seeking to bring his life into the submission of the whole counsel of God. Real man knows he has a God. He questions his God. He explores his God. He asks if his God is worth following and obeying. And when he finds that the God of Scripture is the one true God, Roman starts the long and laborious work of bringing his life under the reign of that God. We, again, we have all these notions of what it means to be a successful man, and we think the strong man is the man who's dominating at Stanford, right? Who's successful at Stanford. That's actually not true. That's a weak man. That's someone who gets carried along by whatever the environment tells him to do. A strong man is actually a man who's not controlled by Stanford, right? He works, and he actually also rests because he recognizes life as more than simply the set of values of Stanford workaholism, right? A weak man dominates at Stanford. A strong man actually knows how to say no to Stanford at the appropriate times. He's not controlled by it. A strong man is not a man who's sexually aggressive, who has conquests. A strong man is actually a man that's not controlled by sex, A strong man has an internet filter. A weak man is too weak to admit he needs an internet filter or accountability software. A strong man is not necessarily the guy that dominates a social situation. A strong man is somebody who's comfortable whether he's the center of attention or not. A weak man is afraid of telling the truth because telling the truth in certain situations can be really hard. It can make things awkward. It can make relationships difficult. A strong man is not afraid of the truth. He's a truth teller, even if it's costly. A weak man uses women for his pleasure. A weak man will ask, and a weak man will push, and a weak man will ask to keep getting a little bit further and touch a little bit more of what's not his and to have what isn't his. But a strong man actually protects women. 
a weak man measures his sense of self, what he can think about himself, um, from, you know, can I really think much of myself if I don't have whatever it is, the GPA, the, uh, the, the internship, the connections, the kind of ascending career path. A weak man measures his sense of self by those simple factors. You know what a strong man does? A strong man does his work and knows who he is. He just does his work, and he knows who he is, which is a child of God. The accolades might or might not come, but he's not defined by the accolades. The salary might or might not come, but he's not defined by the salary. It's not a security. He does his work, and he knows who he is. He's a child of God, and he's secure there. This kind of guy is going to appear a little bit independent. That's what he's going to look like, girls. You should look for a guy... That looks a little bit different. Now, he actually won't be independent. He'll just look independent because independence really doesn't exist. But really what's going on is he's going to be in submission to a God that's a little bit different from everybody else's. It's not going to be Stanford. It's not going to be success. It's not going to be himself or his leisure or his pleasure. He's going to be submission into, in submission to another God. So when he lives in this world among the rest of us, this guy who's mature and submits to this God... He's going to appear independent. It's going to look like, why is he a little bit more rested than us? He's going to look a little bit more relaxed. He's going to talk a little bit less about himself. And he's actually going to be a little bit more interested in who you are. That's what it's going to look like. What we mistake as independence is actually the fact that he just worships and submits to another God than everybody else. And many of y'all know Jeff Bowen, but Jeff Bowen is a beautiful example of this. He's a friend of mine that works at Facebook. Uh, a lot of y'all have had the chance to meet him. He loves it. He's been there for four or five years now, which in Facebook terms is like 40 or 50 years, right? And uh, he works very, very hard. He values hard work and creativity. Um, but he is blowing all the circuits at Facebook. The corporate environment there doesn't know how to understand him, and here's why. He's doing something no one else at Facebook is doing. He's working 40-hour work weeks. And they have no idea how to comprehend why anybody would work at Facebook for 40 hours. Because they're all working, everybody else, at minimum 55 or 60 hours a week. Like, how do you climb this, the, the corporate ladder at Facebook putting 40 hours a week? And this is why he puts in 40 hours a week at Facebook. Because he doesn't worship their gods. That's it. They're like, I mean, Jeff is affable, he's fun to be with, he's respectful, he's a hard worker, but he's like, listen, I put in the time y'all required of me, I did hard work, I've got a lot of work to do back within my neighborhood and within my community of loving my neighbor, because I have a different God than you. And they don't understand him at Facebook. It's kind of, it's actually not kind of beautiful, it's extremely beautiful. They all think Jeff is this independent free spirit. He's actually not an independent free spirit. He just doesn't worship what they worship. He worships this God. And so he looks really different at Facebook. And he looks really different to all the people that worship the Silicon Valley gods. And he's actually stronger for it. It doesn't daunt him. And he would tell you this, his career path is not as steep as it could have been. It's cost him. That's not a sign of weakness. That's actually a sign of integrity and strength. The lack of distress that he has over that, the lack of obsession over that, the desire to instead invest his energy in people elsewhere and serve in other capacities, 
That actually means that he's strong. Guys, who is your God? To who or what are you submitting your life? A mature man knows himself. A godly man actually knows the idols of his heart and knows that they're insufficient to give us life and ultimately will rob us of life. So a godly and mature man gains life and dignity and freedom and nobility and strength by losing his perceived sense of independence in order to submit himself to Scripture, to submit himself to God's rule. A mature man knows who his God is and seeks to submit to him. He ends up becoming a lot stronger than any other man in that, in that way. Last point. A mature man takes responsibility for himself and those around him. These are verses 16 and 17, when God begins to describe what the man looks like. This king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire wives or excessive silver or gold. Uh, in Ephesians, we read this passage earlier, we'll read it later again in the semester. Paul calls a man to love his wife as Jesus loves the church. That's uh, one of a number of New Testament places um, where, where similar prospects, similar ideas presented here are, present, are also applied in marriage. And what I mean by that is men's masculinity, what it, for you as a man, what your calling is, is service and care for others. That's what it means to be a man. You know, girls, whatever y'all feel about gender roles, maybe you're bristling at the prospect of even those kinds of words, gender roles, but at least recognize that within Scripture, the task that given, that's given to men is kind of not enviable. A man is called to lay aside his life for your sake, women. The king of Israel, the ideal man, has told your power, your capacity, your resources, your role as king, as the ideal man does not mean use your resources to accumulate stuff for you. It's not about you becoming the most prestigious king and getting the most horses, getting the most wives, getting the most wealth. All of these were different, uh, different descriptors of what power was. Um, your, your power, your resources. And, got, and here's, here's what's cool about talking to guys at Stanford. And I really mean this. Y'all have a lot of resources. Y'all are bright. You're actually hardworking. You're effective. And you're efficient. I mean, it, it's cool to be here. I'm not as smart as y'all. I couldn't have gotten... I got into Vanderbilt. It was okay. And some of y'all like, you know, kind of like, oh, Vanderbilt, that's pretty good. You know, like y'all are all... Patronize me and make me feel like I could be one of you. But, but I'm not. And y'all have amazing abilities. And at school... Uh, and this time here, you get to go to an elite school and groom those abilities and grow them. But those abilities and the power and the resources you have are not for you. And being a man means you don't use them for you. But you use them for the people around you. Especially for the women around you. Your, all of your power, all of your resources, all of your intellect, all of your hard work, the, the society and the contributions to it that y'all are making... It's supposed to be for others and not for you. A, a king and also a man aren't made to be served, but to serve. The office of king is, a, is an office of service. 
The king is somebody who's viewed as someone who's giving much power in order to seek the well-being of those he's set over. And the writer's using really inflammatory image right here by talking about going back to Egypt. He's saying, when you make your office and your power about accumulating greatness for yourself, you're putting the people back in slavery. When he's talking about going back to Egypt, he's referring to something in Israel's recent history, their enslavement in Egypt. He's saying, I just delivered them from slavery. And if you start to use your power for yourself... You're actually enslaving them again because you're just using people as assets. If this becomes about your power and your glory and your ascent, then simply you're using people as assets again. It's a return to Egypt. (coughs) Guys, if you're at Stanford for your power and for your glory and for your ascent, people are assets to you instead of actually the objects of your service. The mature man uses his strength and his power and his determination to serve others. And guys, what we need to do right here is we need to all admit that we're obsessed with ourselves and who we're here for is ourselves and who we're for in our relationships is ourselves. Who we're for in our friendships and our academic and career pursuits, the main person we're working toward is us. And we need to come and we need to grieve that and then we need to begin to capture a vision of something better than that and a little bit less narcissistic. Because if we're really honest, if you really start to do some introspection on this, and this is frustrating, and talk to you about this as a father, if we're really honest, we even do good things and serve other people for ourselves. We actually even warp the few social service activities we do. And I'll give you an example of how I even warp the love for my children into a self-oriented exercise. There are days when I feel a tremendous amount of guilt as a father because I haven't been the kind of father I want to be. And there are times when I move towards my children emotionally, not because I care about them, but because I don't want to feel guilty. So even trying to be a good father has nothing to do with the actual value of Mary Walton, Shelby, Catherine, Britton, but sometimes it just has to do with my own guilt. And I'm simply using them to alleviate my guilt. And guys, if we're honest, even a lot of the good things we do, we're just using those good things to make ourselves feel better about us, which guess what it means? It means it's still about us. Right? This is why a lot of us are involved in nonprofits or, or service organizations, and yet our roommates probably don't think we're as sweet as we like to think we are when we're serving homeless breakfast. You know? What your roommates think about you tells you if you're compassionate or not, not what the homeless people you serve breakfast to on Friday. You learn more, a whole lot more about who you are by asking your roommate than asking those people. And if you're a different person in those two contexts, then guess what? Who you are serving homeless people isn't really who you are. It's who your roommate think you is. You know, everybody here is talking, you have dreams and you have goals. And we're trying to figure out our major. And there's kind of two guys. I've talked with a lot of y'all about this. There's two basic guys. They're the guys who have this vision of the life they want for themselves. And they're directed toward it and they're devoting toward their energies toward it, they're networking, and they're brainstorming, and they're using all the assets here, um, and, and you're just, you just got this vision of what it's going to be like for you, right? And, and I can tell you, it's still narcissism, and the reason you know it's still narcissism is because you haven't befriended anyone or invested in anyone in a genuine, long-term way who's not a possible asset for you? Who have you loved and befriended and enjoyed as a friend 
that is in no way, shape, or form a possible asset for you. Right? Because there's the guys with a vision, and there's the guys with no vision. And here's what you're doing, what you'll do next year. You'll fill out an application for like Bain, Goldman, or McKinsey, right? And you'll just do that because if you don't know what you're going to do, then you just go make a ton of money at Goldman, right? You don't know what to do, and so you're just letting somebody give you a narrative of like, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. So you'll choose a job you don't care about to make money which you do care about so that you can have something comfortable. Guys, we're, like, our calling is amazing, and I hope you can get captured by it a little bit. We are made to be caretakers and servants just like the God-man Jesus. And our calling is to look at the world around us, to look at our friends, to look at our brothers and our sisters, to look at the women, and to ennoble them, and to strengthen them, and to guide and craft and create a world that restores and honors and reestablishes our humanity. That's our calling, guys. That's what it means to be a man. What makes you a man is not your bravado or your toughness or your internship or your hours of coding. It's not what makes you a man. I wouldn't say that at South Carolina, but it makes sense here, right? (laughs) Girls, I don't know how you figure this out, girls, but this is what you need. And 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 sometimes I was this guy, and a lot of times I wasn't. We got, but let's work together on figuring out a test for this. Go four months without sleeping, right? And at two thirty in the morning, four months into having newborn, you need a dude who's going to wake up. Feed the newborn, put diapers on them so you can rest. But but not one night, I mean four months after not sleeping. That's what a biblical man is. That's what masculinity is. I'm with you girls. We got to f- figure out how to conduct a test for that because I don't know how you figure it out then. But when I think about what God envisions for the way men serve and ennoble and strengthen women, guys, you need a, you need a guy who cannot sleep for four months and still serve you in the middle of the night. That's what you need. And guys, that's who we need to become. And that's what it means to be a man. I don't know how we figure out if you can do that or not. I mean, we'll do some sleep deprivation studies. I don't know. And guys, we have a ton of work in front of us. And not because we failed as men, but because also there have been a lot of husbands and a lot of fathers who've already done a ton of damage to, to the men and the women in this room who've used their authority and used their power to physically abuse, to sexually abuse, and to emotionally abandon. And there are a lot of people on this campus, in our lives, in this room, who are afraid of the prospect of being connected to a man because men have misused their office, have misused their gender, have misused their power, and have misused their resources against both men and women. And guys, in some sense, like, I hope you... I hope y'all want to take up the mantle with the girls in this room, with the girls on campus, with the girls in your life of not simply restoring the office of manhood but, but becoming a servant and restoring the office of manhood in specific people's lives. Let them begin to see a man who's humbled by the gospel, who seeks to serve the Lord, and who uses his resources not to make himself great but to make the people around him great. Guys, we're called to protect, we're called to ennoble and to serve and to honor the people in our lives. What I want for the guys in this room, this is what my dream for you, these are all the far-off dreams. They're easy to talk about because they're too far away. I want y'all to have daughters one day, and I want your daughters to say to you, my daddy's the strongest man in the world, and he's the strongest man in the world for me. 
I want you to be that kind of man, that your daughters say that to you. And not when they're four, when they're at 14. You know, when they're a little bit more self-aware. And guys, I want, want you all to have sons that look at you and think, my dad is strong, he makes my mom feel beautiful, and I want to be like him. And I want to be like him doesn't mean I want to have the stuff he has. It means I want to have the character my dad has. Guys, that's what we need to become. Those kind of men. And it comes when we know who our authority is. When we do the messy work of repenting of loving ourselves and realizing that our whole life is ordered around self and instead coming to the God of Scripture, the God of justice, the God of righteousness, and the God of grace and doing the messy work that takes a long time and it takes a lot of... A lot of work between us as brothers to submit to it. And it also comes when we see that our powers and our resources as men is used or to be used for service and not for self-grandeur. And so I'll close real briefly in, with, in answering the question of like, how do we begin to get there? And this is only the first step. And this is, a, this is one of those sermons that don't come often or enough. This is one of those sermons where the, a lot of the sermons like... Here's who we need to be. Here's who we need to be. Here's who we need to be. And that's hard to hear. And it's hard for me to think through and hard to hear. And the question then is, how do we begin to kind of move down that path? And I'm going to answer that question by way of illustration. Actually, I just want to tell you all about my dad. Um, he, he listens to the podcast. I get stats on how often this podcast is downloaded. And my dad downloads it like 10 times a day. Every single day, just to make me get big stats. That's the kind of dad I have. That's awesome. <laughs> That is awesome. Um, it's actually ridiculous. Well, there's like 60,000 downloads now. I'm like, Dad, you've got to be like filling up terabytes. <laughs> but my dad's a great man. And um, uh, he's very powerful. He's very successful. Uh, you would never know that. And his power and his success in the world uh, is, is far outdone by his service and his humility. And, and if you met him, and some of y'all have... Um, this is what you would think. And, and those of you who have, you can confirm this. You would think, this guy's kind of goofy. Like, he, what's happening here? I don't understand the social interaction that's going on. Because what he does is he, he wears a bow tie. Uh, and, and he's a little bit overweight. And he, what he does is, in every greeting, he tries to kind of lighten the mood. And he wants everybody to have a good time. So he does usually something that's like slightly self-deprecating, but also slightly awkward. So you're like, that's funny, but not comfortable. <laughs> So a lot of times he'll, he'll meet people, he's met my friends, and he'll pretend to be blind. And he'll like, <laughs> he'll carry the joke too far too, you know, like, oh, we can, we're past that. And we, no, we don't know how to address the fact that we know you're not blind, but you're still trying to pull it off. But he does French, he also does Russian. And anyways, that's my dad. If you met him, um, he wouldn't impress you. You would never think I'm in the presence of someone great. Um, he would just amuse you. And he would ask you a lot of questions about yourself. If you met him for five minutes, that's what your interaction would be. And anybody who's met him can confirm that. That's how he is. But here's what you would never know. And the, and the key to all of this is that you would never know this. And as his son, I've actually had the privilege to know more about him. Know more and more about him. He's my best friend. And, um, and yet at the same time, I know he doesn't tell me everything in, in, in a good way. What you would never know is you would actually never... You would think... Because of what I've told you, you would think he's really wealthy. Um, because he's the president and CEO of a family business that's now 100 years old. Several hundred employees. Um, 
And you would think that he's wealthy because you'd know that about him. You'd think he's wealthy because he'd be really generous to you. Um, But what you wouldn't know is that he's divested almost all of his ownership in that company. And he's given inordinate amounts of money away to to about a majority of the REFs that exist, uh, to foreign missionaries, to nonprofits that care for single moms, uh, pregnant moms who, who don't have support, to seminaries. Um, he's also given tons of money to friends who are in need, not as a loan. He's just given money to friends when they needed it. Big amounts. So you'd think he's really wealthy. You wouldn't know that he's given away most of it. You would think that he's really carefree. He has a really positive demeanor. And, and because he'd be enjoying you so much, you'd be just think like, that guy, he, he enjoyed me. What you wouldn't know is that currently he's walking through a lot of dark valleys with a lot of people who are carrying some really heavy things. What you wouldn't know is that at different times all throughout his life, he's had friends who've been scandalized publicly. Their reputations have been um, besmirched wrongly. And when his friends are scandalized, he goes up and he stands before them. stands beside them and he stands before them. And he gets scandalized and he gets defrauded and his reputation gets wrecked. And he's never defended himself. He just stands with his friends when they need help. When they get accused of things that are wrong. And he catches all the accusation too. He's never defended himself. You would think that he doesn't have time for little people because you're going to think like, oh, this is kind of some big shot. You would never know that on the huge church, the mega church staff that we go to that he's been an elder at, um, that the people he spends the most time with are the assistants on the junior high youth staff. And if you know anything about youth ministry, the biggest nobodies are the assistants on the junior high youth staff. He knows all their names. He takes them out to lunch regularly. He pastors them. He loves them. He offers everything he has for them. He knows intimately all the nobodies. You would, you would never know, but he's, he's on the board of multiple organizations. Um, and you would think that because he's on the board, that his involvement in all those organizations is at a really high level. But when he goes to the board meetings at the seminary, he's trying to get out of his meeting with all the big important people because there's a couple of first-year students who are really struggling. And so he's ditching the important people, the other board members, the presidents, the big donors, so he can go to breakfast with these first-year students who are just really struggling because they're at seminary, they've moved away from family, and don't have anybody. You wouldn't know that his wife is the only one in her community at her age who hasn't had cosmetic surgery. She can't name an acquaintance or friend that hasn't had cosmetic surgery. She's the only one that hasn't. And the reason why is because he treasures her as beautiful. Here's the thing. You wouldn't think he's smart. You actually wouldn't. <laughs> because he'd ask you a lot of questions, and he'd really dignify everything he said, and he'd really learn from you and find you fascinating and learn. I, the greatest privilege I have is to be his son. Um, it's an honor, and I only know a little bit of what he does because he doesn't let the right hand see what the left hand is doing. Uh, he doesn't let me know the full extent of his kindness and his service and his generosity. If at the end of my life, if God says, Britain, you are half the man John Wood was, I'd consider that a life well lived. He's a man of God. He really is. And this is the key. This is what you've got to see. How did he become this kind of man? He does not make sense in the world at all. He doesn't make sense in the community he lives in. He doesn't make sense in the, the high-profile circles he lives in. 
because he doesn't, he, he's not fascinated by them. He's running from them as fast as he can. He's getting rid of his wealth as fast as he can. And the whole time, if you ever met him, you wouldn't know any of this. You just think like, oh, that's like the funny chubby guy with the bow tie that spoke to me in French. And he doesn't even know French, you know? <laughs> and he was interested in me. That's what you would think. That's, that would be the only impression you got. If you could get him to talk about himself, which is hard to do, to say, John, how did you become a man like that? If you could get him to talk about himself, he would say, that he would just talk about how kind and gracious God is to him. That's all he would talk about. Because the way he became this kind of man is simply this. He was just humbled by the gospel. He was humbled by it. He felt sorrow over his sin and selfishness. He still feels it today. He grieves it. And he rests and delights and hopes that the good news of Jesus is true. And if you really begin to understand that, and those things take deep root in our lives, guys, then what happens is our egos and our insecurities start to wither in the best possible way. And that's how John Wood became a servant like Jesus. If you met him for five minutes, you just think, this guy's goofy, he's kind of happy, and he's interested in me. Guys... That's a man after God's own heart. It's a man I want to be like. It's a man I've had the privilege of knowing. And really, all that ever happened to him is he just grieved his sin and hoped Jesus was the Savior. And that allowed him to let go of all of his resources and his need to be something much and become a man who uses all of his resources not for his own glory, but to enable and serve and make beautiful things of other people. Let's pray.